Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Your hands and feet are your connection to the world. They collect a massive amount of sensory information and help support many different functions. But how exactly do they affect your movement? On this episode, we discuss what your brain thinks about your hands and feet. We explore the sensory homunculus and how our brain maps our body. We cover the development of our hands and feet, grip strength, locomotion, and barefoot running. We dive into their form, function, and ultimately how both work within movement patterns. So let's get going with this episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. So hands and feet, Gray. Um, you know, well, that's one thing that over the last, I would say almost 10 years, the foot has gotten quite a bit of kind of interest. People yes. are paying a lot more attention to, you know, the whole idea about barefoot running and, you know, you see the minimalist shoe and people, you know, probably for, you know, quite a few years ago, we were getting tons of questions about you're training your feet and what do you do, but the hand is often overlooked. And if you think about, you know, we put them both together in this podcast today and, you know, they really function similarly, obviously one's on the ground and one's up here, but mm-hmm. as far as how they function, it's pretty similar. Um, but, but we still, we, we get a lot of questions about the foot, but not the hand. And, and the hand is, you know, just as important because it tells us so many things about how the rest of the body is functioning. No, and, and when we were sitting around the table a couple of weeks ago, looking at this topic, uh, it's so big a topic. How do you fit it in one episode? Or some people just completely overlook it. And I think there's a great in-between discussion that makes us all just think a little bit more when it comes to movement patterns, because I love that term upstream. We, you and I, whether we knew it or not, whether Dan Heath coined the term or not for us, from, from day one, we went upstream with our athletes to see if we could prevent some of the problems that you were ultimately going to have to deal with during the competitive season when you're covering sports. And so we tried to get upstream. We wanted to do more than just a physical. We wanted to do some type of movement. We didn't have all the risk factor data. We didn't have the ankle mobility stats right now, but you had a gut feeling. Kids that can't move well, they're going to pop their hamstrings first. They're going to throw out their back first. They're going to have shin splints first. They're going to have arm pain first. It's just going to there. And if you go upstream, the, the hand and foot is as far upstream as you can go for kinetic movement information. Now, your eyes are also giving you things, but what your hands and feet feel ultimately determine the pattern that's happening next. If you step on attack, there's a pattern that's coming. And believe it or not, it's a reciprocal pattern. You're going to lift the foot with the tack in it up simultaneously while throwing the other foot down because your brain already knows if I lift both feet, I'm going to land on my ass. So, So there are a lot of patterns that are driven by the sensitivity of your hands and feet. And you mentioned the word homunculus. When we look at the map of the human brain, there is a huge amount of real estate dedicated to the face and hands. And believe it or not, even though the foot isn't quite as well represented as the hand, it's more represented the entire leg than it's attached to. So your hands and feet are as upstream as you can go when it comes to sensory information, and they're as downstream as you can go when it comes to the motor representation of the fastball you just threw or the rock you just climbed. So we often 
talk about hand strength or, or, or good strong feet or something like that, and you even mentioned the minimalist shoe, let's, let's just go ahead and say it. 150 years ago, every shoe was minimalist. And, and, and we were walking most average humans a few hundred years ago, were covering six miles a day without a blink. And that's on a regular day, not on a day when you really had to carry water and haul wood. That's on a regular day. And we barely cover that. And that homunculus you mentioned, most people are like, okay, what in the world is that? Hopefully you may be Googling it out there. It's just basically a representation of your face, your big old hands and your big old feet, because they are, you know, they are what's connecting us to the world. You know, everything that's going on in your face, you're taking in sensory information with, through your eyes, your nose, your, your, your senses through your ears, your breath, you know, what you're feeling. Then, of course, your hands are connecting to the outside world. And your feet are, of course, connected to the body. And over the years, if you mentioned 150 years ago, how much has our foot changed? How much has our hand changed over the last 150 years? I mean, we don't think about that, but it's because of everything we're doing. And What's it going to be like another 50 to 100 years from now? Yeah, in, in the last 100 years, the density and size of our mandible, our lower jawbone, has changed just because we don't have to chew food anymore. You run a marathon, you squirt some goo in your mouth, and you keep on going. I mean, you know, everybody's drinking protein shakes, shakes thinking that's like a, a scrambled eggs for breakfast. It's just not. You're paying for processing, not for, for, for product. But the, the thing that, that really was relevant to me in COVID is I'm, I'm a pattern guy. And, and I would much rather lecture to an audience than a camera because I can see the expressions on their face until everybody's wearing a mask. And then all of a sudden, we're deprived from that social feedback of, is everybody getting my joke <laughs> or not, right? Yeah, you, you miss the smiles, you miss the gestures of the face. So our face is our sort of social connection to the world. And our hands and feet are our environmental connection to the world. And it's funny because if you wore gloves all the time, it would completely change your dexterity. But it doesn't occur to us that wearing shoes all the time doesn't. And, and the irony was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when people were trying minimalist shoes for the first time, barefoot running, these are people that wouldn't even walk around their house without slippers. Now they're going to do a 5K barefoot, right? and they got a problem. If, if, one, if two pills work, let's take four. You know, and, and I also noticed when I was going through my RKC training uh, back a long time ago with Jones and, and, and Pavel, that most people would show up, rip the skin off their hands in day one and use tape and things like that. Well, if you show up at a certification to do your snatch test and a bunch of kettlebell stuff, I would like to think you already had some calluses. Right. Isn't that called the kettlebell challenge? Yeah. Right? Not- <laughs> because you're, you're supposed to show up prepared. You are. Which, and, right. And there's a, this, the, it's the journey. And, and <laughs> we grew up here in Pennsylvania County. You shake hands with somebody who works with their hands every day, it almost feels like shaking hands with a shoe. They're, they're, the pad and the callus on their hand, you don't have to ask yourself, am I shaking the hand of a person that has a strong hand? And, and when we start thinking about hand strength, uh, one of the things that, that was amazing to me is I've met two of the guys with the strongest hands, and so have you, uh, John Brookfield and Brett Jones. And yet you hand them a grip dynamometer and yeah, it's strong, but it's not nearly as strong as you think. Cause these guys can bend steel and tear a deck of cards. And it makes me start thinking, did the grip dynamometer really represent what, what uh, Brett Jones and John Brookfield can do with their grip? And I'm like, Oh, the grip dynamometer is a hand strength test, not a hand stability test. 
But if their hands are more stable than mine and yours, then they become these hooks. And now their pecs, their lats, their delts, their triceps can influence because their hand has a good grip. And when you and I first introduced the fundamental capacity screen, what would happen when we did the farmer's carry test with everybody? My grip gave out. I could have gone a lot further, but my grip gave out. No, your grip saved your ass because you were either getting ready to fall or pull out your shoulder. So well, your grip was the override. It, it said, we can't do this anymore. So your grip let go. It's your safety valve. Well, there's two things that are pretty consistent in the research right now that tell us almost like a barometer of, of how of your overall health. Mm -hmm. And that's grip strength and balance. And that's a representation of both your hand strength, as you said, grip strength, but as you just kind of described, it's not just about your grip strength. It's about what that says about the rest of your body. It does. The it same does. thing with your balance. Because the first thing that you've got to do is have pretty good foot. And I think Vladimir Yanda coined the term short foot posturing. Yeah. So when you stand on one foot, your foot in essence needs to grab the ground. Yeah. And go into a short, because you know, Gray, if you collapse your foot, that's a sign of a weak foot, which means you're, balance, you're not going to balance as good because your foot is not giving you the information or input you need from the ground to tell the glute, the knee, everything else. Your glute media shuts down when your foot collapses. Is it that does. a glute medius problem or a foot problem? Well, if you think about it, if, if, if you've got any martial arts training at all, if somebody bends your hand in the wrong direction, they can take you anywhere they want to go. I can take your thumb and put it in a position and <laughs> tell you to walk anywhere I want. So there are things in your hand and feet that pretty much say, hey, if the end, if the terminus of your movement pattern, if what's happening with your hand and foot uh, sends a signal, hey, pull up. That's exactly what happened in these carry tests. And these people think, oh, I'm strong, but my grip's not. If your grip's not strong, you're not. I hate to say this. It doesn't mean you can't do bicep curls or express yourself on a machine with a little bit of resistance training. But ultimately speaking, if you got weak hands and feet, I don't want you saving my ass in a burning building. Right, I'll it's be very saving much yours. Functional. <laughs> that's where you can say where you go into functional fundamental strength. Yes. And then you can look at that through your grip strength. Again, grip strength you, you compares to, you know, relates to people overweight, diabetic cardiovascular problems, and then one study says that it's longevity. And it doesn't mean, because what, what's the next question? Well, how do you strengthen your grip? Can I just go out and buy a gripper? Yeah. And that's, and, and that's what, what we're saying. So every stoplight, you squeeze your tennis ball, somebody, they're missing the point. A, there's no reason to have a gender age-related grip weakness. I think what we would call that is inhibition. Now, if you're grossly inactive, your grip's going to decline. And when feet. you say inhibition... Give us a little bit, because I think that's the key, is because the more you grip, the more that sets your shoulder, sets your core. There's some research out there that says, you know, the more you grip, you're actually, your core, you know, gets more activated. Yeah. Well, Pavel used that as a cue. If you're, if you've got three more presses with the kettlebell and you find yourself sort of struggling a little bit, crush the handle and watch what happens. Neurologically speaking, big word, irradiation. When you focus on your grip everything behind it gets stronger. When you focus on your pecs, you might pose well, but you're not telling your hand a thing. Your hand and feet move because of purpose, locomotion manipulation, right? And, and your, your entire body welds your arms and legs together with reciprocal patterning that starts in rolling and crawling. 
And then all of a sudden you stand up and you can run a locomotion program with your legs and still throw a cross body pass with your upper body, completely dissociate these two things. But as long as I'm not carrying or, or throwing something, my hands go right back into rhythm with my running. And if you didn't even show me somebody's lower body, and I looked at their upper body posture, their breathing in their arms, I could tell you if their running's good or not because of the, that rhythm and that contribution. You get back to, you know, we're talking about the neurodevelopmental sequence. And if you've listened to us, you know, we always kind of take it back to how we grew and developed. And if you think about, you know, I had a friend of mine a few years ago that was freaking out because their three-year-old hung on to the uh, garage door as it was raising up. So they're <laughs> dangling there at the garage door, you know, with their feet off the ground. I'm like, yeah, just lower the garage door. The kid will be fine. <laughs> Because they can hang there. They've got that, they've got that innate, natural, enough strength because they can hold their cell. They can Basically, it's an extended arm hang. And that's a good way to just check the overall integrity. Let's not call it strength, integrity, or in your words, stability. Exactly. And exactly. I think that's where we start. And look at, look at babies. They put their feet in their, hand, feet in their hands in their mouth all the time. Yep. Because that's where they're trying to get connected to the, the outside environment. And you'll see that. And I'm sure if you go on YouTube, you'll see that quite a bit where you see these kids just dangling, hanging from these, you know, monkey bars at a very young age. But what do you see a lot of these people who do a lot of strength training? They're trying to hold themselves, hold themselves up with their what? Their pecs, their lats, they're all exactly. in this little, you know, high threshold state and not just naturally. Because what do you tell someone to do a farmer's care? Or in one of your exercises, Gray, you always say, let the kettlebell hang and grip mm -hmm. it. Yes. Yes. You, it, basically exert your force through your grip. If you don't have major problems, your body knows what to do. If you try to run your body and neglect your grip, it won't know what to do. So most of the signals where you really should reorganize what your hand and foot does, there's nothing wrong with pronation. It's how the foot works. It's overpronation that's the problem. Pronating at the wrong time. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, the whole thing of valgus collapse, how is that a knee problem? If anything, it's a hip weakness or a foot weakness or a sensory problem that says, I don't even know where my knee is until it puts a lot of stress on these ligaments in a completely awkward position. But the, the one thing I want our listeners to do right now, because I'm sure people pause us all the time when they're listening to the podcast, if you want to check- I pause you in my head. <laughs> if you want to check your grip strength right now or sometime in the quick near future, go find a pull-up bar and don't do pull-ups. Do what we call a flexed arm hang. Get that chin over the bar, make your grip, palms facing in, just get a good old-fashioned chin up and hold that flexed arm hang. And if you're not there 20 seconds from now, body relative to the, to the size of your body, your grip could be a little bit weak. But I think you could also say everything behind it's a little weak too. And back to my point about the people at the RKC with ripped up hands, they were watching too many videos with swings and snatches and presses and squats and not doing enough with their hands. And they were trying to dedicate a half-hour workout to learning moves. No. Pick up the kettlebell four times a day for five minutes and give your hands a chance to recover. People who went out and did barefoot running at distance the very first time, their feet were so sore for four days they couldn't do it again. And so now it's this four-day cycle of insult my foot, hope I recover. Insult my foot, hope I recover. What's wrong with doing a minimalist shoe or a shorter run twice a day? 
And, and we don't have time for our hands and feet to get ready. And yet that is the sensory driver of your pattern. And it is the ultimate expression of your motor output. And we don't have time for our hands and feet to catch up. So we wear gloves, we put on tape. And, and I, I think Christopher McDougall quoted this stat in Born to Run. And I don't really know if we can vet it or not, but it makes so much sense when you've been in clinical practice. The more you spend on your running shoes, the more foot problems you probably have because you're chasing technology instead of getting authentically strong in the segment that's responsible for most of your running pattern in the first place. And that's if your foot's wrong, how can anything behind it be right? And if you look back, I remember in the early days, Gray, when we were in the clinic, I was pretty much fitting orthotics on people that were coming. That was kind of my role when we were in the clinical setting, fitting these orthotics. And I see, you know, Dr. Scholes and all these things. And again, another question we get, should we wear orthotics? And again, I hate to answer a question like this, but it depends. There is a certain time where a person may need some type of orthotic. And an orthotic, if you don't know, is just something that you build to help their foot work better. And, and if and, you do it correctly, it's there to enhance the proprioceptive input you get or the, you know, how it functions, right? But it's still there as an assistive device. That's what an orthotic is. But I think too often people go right to that without doing the proper things to maybe train it. It's almost like a last resort. It, it is a last resort. And we did that. And I had, I had imposed one obstacle on myself. You and I had these little temporary footbeds. They, they were very inexpensive, but they gave your arch a little bit of information. They, they, they weren't a rigid orthotic. But I had this thing, and I think you and probably Kyle Keese remember it, before we ever issue an orthotic or an expensive footbed for you. Let's get your deep squat back first. Because if your hips, knees, and ankles are so stiff that you can't deep squat, your only choice in gait is pronation instead of dorsiflexion. So if I stick a good structural orthotic in your shoe and you can't deep squat, you're going to be back in a week saying, it feels like I got a golf ball in my arch. No, you're using your arch in locomotion in a completely unintentional way. So by getting back your deep squat, by making your lunges symmetrical, by making your hurdle step look a lot better in your single leg stance, get at least 15, 20 seconds. Now, if you're still flunking your Y balance test, I can easily give you a little bit of foot support. But you use the word assistive device. I could easily make the argument that if you don't take a functional approach, you're handing somebody an enabling device. When, when my mom's hypertensive and she gets put on uh, high blood pressure medication and she's on that medication for 30 years, that's an enabling device. That is not an assistive device. It should lower her blood pressure so she can get fit and make the behavior modifications to try to authentically lower her blood pressure and heal her cardiovascular system. But how many times we dispense, how many times have you put an ACL brace on a kid and the parents think that's going to create a competitive right. advantage? That's right. I mean, <laughs> and you doesn't. see that. I mean, okay, let, let's not go too far off topic here, but you talk about the same thing with tape. You slap everybody, you know, you go to see a 5K or a 10K and, you know, 95% of the people out there have tape on. Now, if, if you, you quit get, printing it in uh, colors, they well, quit using it because well, it's a fashion statement. It ain't a functional statement. Right. But there's a, there's a time and a place, mm -hmm. I would say, for those things. You know, for example, you know, in my previous life, when I was working with these high school athletes, there were plenty of athletes, and I've seen the x-rays, because the foot, as you mentioned earlier, Gray, should pronate supinate, which means you should have an arch when you're doing certain things. And when you land heel strike, 
that arch is going to collapse to help you decelerate. And all of that motion in your foot is actually what's sending signals to the rest of your body. So your glutes, your core, and all this other stuff works. But some of those kids, they don't have that ability to pronate. Their, their foot is very, very rigid. And I think knowing that, okay, that person's foot who's very, very rigid, let's get as much out of their hips, their knees, their core, everything else, because they're going to be limited. And I think that's where it, it's, it is a time, as you said, let's get as much out of their functional patterns as we can, and let's give them an enabling device if we need to, to get them as much out of that as, as possible. And yeah, I can tell you right now, you stick an orthotic in one of those athletes foot that basically is so rigid. They don't have any printed. It's flat as a pancake. Okay. You know, flat as a pancake. You see some athletes that have flat as pancakes feet and they are fast. So don't, don't, don't say just because they've got, they don't have good foot posturing or structure. They're not fast. They're very fast, very good athletes. And I think that's where you've got to have that little bit of give and take. Does that person need an orthotic? No. Are they having problems? Yes. Figure out where the problem is and then make the determination whether they need this enabling device or not to perform. And that's another, that's another difference, I would, I would argue. No, I think you, you make some, some great statements about that. And, and how, do you, how do you test the feet? Well, a long, long time ago. That's the I, next question we're going to get, Greg. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, a long time ago, I'm, I'm just uh, coming out of PT school. And at that time, the uh, isokinetic devices, you know, if you didn't oh, yeah. have a Biodex, a Cybex, or a Kincom, you, you didn't have a sports medicine clinic. But, you know, Gary Gray said when the foot hits the ground, everything changes. And, and he made us all think functionally. And uh, a few years back at Perform Better, I saw Todd Wright give one of the best foot and pronation talks I've ever seen. And this guy has seen some bad feet. You know why? Because he's worked in professional and collegiate basketball. And there's never an opportunity where a basketball player gets to do anything barefoot. And yet when we do strengthen those feet, we do improve their Y balance test. Or, you know, the, Gary Gray originally did the thing, the star excursion test. God bless all those guys. And God bless Phil Plisky for, you know... Um, um, uh, tightening up the test. And then we even turned it into a motor control screen. We do that motor control screen with your shoes on. Um, and I've always said, if I really want to see if your shoe, your orthotic is helping you or hurting you, I can actually take a FMS kit and do a motor control screen, which is nothing but a slide box, two times your foot length. And if you cover that distance or cover beyond that distance and you don't have a difference in each side greater than four centimeters, you probably got a, a strong enough foot to support your body. If you can't cover your own body dimension, those two foot links with that little slide box, uh, and let's say you can't cover it barefoot, but you can in your orthotic and shoe, I'd probably be wearing that orthotic and shoe, but might try to wean myself off because it's a signature that you're enabling your foot. You're not assisting your foot over time. But what, but one thing you, you said and kind of what led me to want to bring that up is you can have the person in that orthotic to go out and play their sport if that's what they need, but maybe train them out of the orthotic. And some things, if they're doing balance beam, some of the things that they need to do, maybe do those things barefoot to try to strengthen up that foot as much as possible, but let them go perform using something like that if that's what's needed. But the one thing I also say and throw this back to you, Gray, is before you do that motor control screen, what do we do? 
We do an ankle mobility test. Exactly. Now that ankle mobility test, the one thing that you brought to the table, and we were we were trying to do it half kneeling, and we were trying to do all these things up against the wall, is you got to account for the knee and where that knee and really hip are going as you take that knee out over the toe to check closed chain ankle dorsiflexion. So for you all out there, picture this. You're standing up, and you just want to have your knee go out over your toe as far as you can. That's checking ankle mobility. But if you're doing that, your knee caves in. If your knee caves in, your foot's going to collapse. So the one thing you brought to the table is, all right, we have to account for the foot collapsing, have to make sure the knee is tracking in the right place. You said do it tandem, which means one foot right in front of the other. As soon as we do one foot right in front of the other, and you're basically on a balance beam, and you let that knee track forward, we're talking, we're saying, oh, you're checking ankle mobility. But that's also checking foot mobility. Yes, Because the first thing you've got to do in that tandem stance and that knee starts going forward is your foot's got to go into supination to let that knee drift out on the outside of your toe. So if you guys are sitting out there, stand up and have your knee go on the outside of your toe and see what happens to your foot. And if your foot doesn't do that, then it's going to show you a lack of ankle mobility. But it could be a foot problem. Exactly. And that's that short foot posture that you were talking about. It's, have you ever uh, saw a footprint on the beach? And one looks like a bunch of toes and then a little line on the outside of the foot and a heel. And the other just looks like a duck walk there, <laughs> right? And, and I'm probably closer to the duck than, than anything else. My dad was a natural runner. He's a 100-meter guy. And when I was a kid, I remember him was like, oh, I can hear you running 100 yards away. You're hitting the ground so hard. And I'm like, oh, that's how I run. But, but what he was saying was get up on your toes. Quickest way to fix that is stop running and start jumping rope for a little while. Before you know it, your feet will get really, really strong. And you're, and you're, if you've got that ankle mobility problem, your feet are going to be obliged to compensate for that. But yeah, almost every test we did in the movement screen was, was really a way to say, okay, I'm going to ask you to do an authentic pattern. And I already know the popular compensations. So if somebody can't deep squat correctly, they will deep squat incorrectly. Their valgus collapse or their trunk will go way forward, right? If somebody can't lunge correctly, once again, their trunk will go way forward. If somebody can't balance on one foot correctly, they'll dip a shoulder. So if you look at where the stick is <laughs> in the squat, hurdle, step, and lunge, as long as the stick ain't coming out of the original position. So in the, in the overhead squat, if, if that stick remains overhead, in the lunge, if it remains vertical, in the hurdle step, if it remains level, you got your signature. I didn't have to move my body to help my foot do its job. My foot did its job and my spine stayed organized. Now, to go a little bit deeper, when we launched the FMS and when we launched the SFMA, a lot of the smart people in class said, well, how are you screening the foot? How are you screening the hand? Well, number one, if you do anything in the movement screen or SFMA and your foot or hand hurt, you need a foot or hand exam. However, don't ever assume that you got normal feet and dysfunctional hips and knees. And don't ever assume that you got normal hips and knees and dysfunctional feet. If we see a broken pattern and that pattern ends at your foot or hand, you're going to have to consider that. But the reason that we don't go into screening for the foot and hand in movement screening is, all right, you are responsible 
for vascular problems, neurological problems, and upstream problems. When you see somebody that's got a carpal tunnel on both sides, look at their neck first, okay? that's <laughs> When you see somebody that's got plantar fasciitis on both sides or Achilles tendonitis on both sides, you better look at their low back. When you got somebody who's got numb hands and feet, you might be looking at peripheral neuropathy. So this ain't no fitness little, I'm going to help your hands and feet type thing. <laughs> right. You better look seriously because if you screw up somebody's hands and feet, you've screwed up their life. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard us talk about the power of the functional movement screen. It can forever change the way you work with athletes and clients. Sign up for our FMS live virtual course and become FMS certified from the comfort of your own home or office. You will be guided by a live instructor through the entire process with the ability to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work with live models throughout the day. You'll finish the course with the ability to start implementing the FMS into your own practice. And for a limited time, we'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special discount. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off virtual FMS Level 1 or Level 2 certification courses. That's virt two two. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $120 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. We've, we're starting to get data, and I'm not going to suggest this is in research, and it may be. I, I can't keep up with all the research on the functional movement screen right now, but shoulder mobility in particular. You're the CEO of the damn company. Well, you better, you better yeah, keep up I, with a little I, bit of it. I keep up with as much as possible, but there's there's about four to five hundred of them out there right now, and yeah. yeah but if well, you well, got we a know major, half of them are doing it wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't need that research. So if you got a shoulder mobility significant asymmetry. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically when you're trying to touch your hands on one side of your, you know, on your back, one side and on the back, the other way, put them close together. If there's a major asymmetry or a major limitation, the first thing you probably need to look at is the neck because we are starting to collect data that says if you've got a major asymmetry or major significant limitation in your shoulder mobility, your grip is going to be down. Well, so your grip is down, shoulder mobility but again, it could, that's just a representation it is. It of is. some other things. And I think that's, hopefully that's the key takeaway from this talk today is your feet and hands, one, by doing training the right way, functional training, you're training your hands and your feet, right? If you're doing squats, lunges, deadlifts, you're training your hand, carries, yes. overhead presses, you're doing, you're training your hands and feet. You don't necessarily need to go out and just do grip all the time. You're training those areas or pick up marbles with your feet. You are, and, and you don't really have to train your hands and feet hard. They're always attached. But if you want to give them the nutrients and supplements that make them reconnect, reinvest themselves in your whole pattern, why do you think we love Indian clubs, jump rope, balance beams, chops and lifts, and medicine balls? Because these things are transferable. And what I mean by that, it, when you do these things, all your other activities get boosted. But if you do a lot of bench presses and curls, your pecs get bigger and your biceps get bigger, but nobody can really measure anything in your life from your golf shot, <laughs> you know, to your MMA skills. Nothing got better, but you do look a little bit better in your summer photographs. So when, when we see chops and lifts, balance beam, Indian club, jump rope, all these things, this is sort of crossing that bridge. It's still nonspecific. How Indian Club's going to help me be a better golfer? Well, they boost your balance, they connect your core, and they make your reciprocal patterns and hands and, and but, shoulders move fast. But one thing that, you know, we, I, I mentioned deadlifting, lunging, squatting, overhead presses, but the one thing that you've got to make the transition to, and, I, and you brought a couple things and I'm going to kind of kick it over to you again, 
is all those activities I mentioned, deadlifting, squatting, lunging, overhead presses. If you do those with poor form, it's going to impact impact you negatively. By doing an overhead press with poor form, you better believe that's not helping your grip. Right. Because your your posture, it's like doing squeezing a gripper with poor form, poor posture. No different than some of those exercises you mentioned. You can't do a jump rope you with can't. poor form. You can't you slouch can't, and jump rope. <laughs> you can't balance beam with you poor can't. form. So those things, and you've coined the term, and maybe I, I'll give you credit today, self-limiting activities are a great way to maybe start or weave in to some of those other traditional lifts because they are going to ensure that you juice up what I would say the neurological system, which is your hands and your feet, before you maybe go do some of those lifts. Yeah, and in, in, in athletic body imbalance, and some of you may not even know I wrote oh, that book. Selfless it, plug right there. <laughs> well, it was published in 2003, and I'm surprised it's still selling, but it's still selling. But we go through chops, lifts, med ball throws. We go through a lot of these activities that allow you to, to fully express yourself. And one of the things we started noticing, and this is when we were grip strength testing, the medical way, to do a grip dynamometer, if we're going to do the age and strength prediction, is with your elbow bent 90 degrees, your, your hand by your side, and, and you just squeeze the dynamometer, and you do it three to six times, and you basically average it and stuff like that. We started taking the grip dynamometer and putting it down by your side, suitcase or farmer's carry, and up over your head. And all of a sudden, if your grip strength, because it's actually supposed to be a little bit stronger over your head, if your grip strength goes down, because you reached your arm over your head, that's your shoulder saying, I'm pretty vulnerable up here. And so I'm only going to let you have 80% of what you normally have. That's and, and we've been putting those on motors for a long time. It's called a governor, right? If you go past that, you're so stupid. If you go past this, it'll blow up. So we're going to put this roadblock here. Your body, and that's what I, you asked me about inhibition, that's what it is. I can put you in certain positions where you become instantaneously weak. And that is to keep you from getting injured further. When Phil Plisky has you stand barefoot and reach as far as you can with the other foot out in a direction, at some point, you become weak and unbalanced. And at that point, you became disconnected from your foot. But you know, that's a, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because that's another question we get quite often. And if you don't know about the Y balance test, we have plenty of, plenty of information on the website that talk about it. But the one question we get is why don't you make them, you know, uh, keep their heel down or make sure they put their knee in the right place or make sure they don't lunge forward or, or kind of pitch forward when they do the Y balance. We pretty much let them compensate if you think about it in the Y balance test, because what they're not going to perform well. If, if, if you do Their it wrong- Their brain is not going to let them do it well. If you do it wrong, we know one of two things. You're going to post low numbers or asymmetrical numbers, and we still caught you. Right. So it's one of those tests that if you do it wrong, you're not going to post good numbers. Um, so that, 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 that really does take care of that. When we made an abbreviated version, the motor control screen, I literally said, keep the shoes on so we can do quick rechecks because you and I both know- if you get the right movement pattern and get the right corrective strategy, 10 minutes from now, I can change your balance. And that's not me making your balance adaptation better forever. That's me unburdening your quad tightness, your inactive core, um, getting you breathing appropriately, getting your head and neck aligned, and all of a sudden your balance gets better. So most people walk into practice and warm up. And don't do anything to change their state of readiness. But really, that's what a corrective is. It 
changes your state of readiness for now. We, we've seen this. I can lay a neck patient down on my table. Their grip strength is better than when they stand up and assume the damn crooked posture that made their neck bad in the first place, right? So lying down, my grip strength is this. Standing up, my grip strength is this. Which is the functional measure? How often do you have to grip things really hard laying down or sitting in your lazy boy? You don't. You're standing up doing stuff. And so when we get into functional positions and instantaneously get weaker, that's called inhibition because if I, if your body's saying, if I gave you the full horsepower that you, you possess, you're going to get hurt. And that's what happens. Get, People get, get hurt. Yeah. I mean, what happens? The ACL tear, one of the most, one of the most, you know, again, you, people call it epidemic. Well, is it a knee problem? I'd argue it's not. Yeah. Now people will talk about the valgus collapse and all this stuff occurring. Is it a core problem? Is it an ankle or foot problem? Yes. It's all of those. It's, well, you know what? One of the but things. But I guess what my point is, is when you land and you go into valgus collapse and your foot collapses down, you're done. Your body, is, your, your core is inhibited. Your glutes are inhibited because your foot, and we're not supposed to be doing that. But athletes in particular can override that really, really, and they're really, really good at it. Yeah. No, so, so one of the things I like to tell people, if you have a hand or foot problem, you know it. And if you have serious movement pattern problems, don't be surprised when you get a hand or foot. And you problem. don't know it. Most people don't know it. <laughs> they don't. They don't know they got movement pattern problems because we really don't have to move to live anymore. If you got two thumbs, uh, Grubhub and Amazon will get you anything you need. And you never have to leave your chair. But unfortunately, and, and Matt made this observation when we were doing some, some research, you know, is, is an iPhone made to fit your hand or your pocket? And, and it's nice. We can use this hand to fight. We can use this hand to throw things. We can use this hand to climb, push up, strike, swing, use tools, and we can use it to text. But when you text 15 hours a day, you're probably going to get a little tendonitis. Well, about, in about five years, maybe, or even right now, you don't have to take that iPhone out of your pocket. <laughs> That's right. You keep, the, keep your earbuds in. You can just say what you want to say. So we're not far away from even having to, having to hold this thing with our hands, right? Yeah. But the one thing, you know, I, I want to touch on, because again, a lot of, again, some of the questions we get out, asked are about asymmetries. Yep. And let's just take a couple minutes and talk about asymmetries, because People assume, because we always say you don't want to be asymmetrical because we know that is a potential risk factor. It's been pretty consistent in the research. And, and let me just say one thing before we start. Lee and I started this journey early in our career with some military studies that said asymmetries are actually a bigger problem than tightness or weakness in any given part in your body. It's when the tightness or weakness makes your body asymmetrical. And we got on this journey. So if you look at a movement screen, out of the seven tests we do, five of them give you an opportunity to represent your left patterning and your right patterning. And we've been able to capture quite a bit. That tangent, all right, yeah. back in. So, but the question, the, the, the good question that comes up is, well, we're all one hand, primarily most of us, are either right or left hand dominant, which means we are built to be asymmetrical. But I would argue, okay, we get into athletics. You're, if you're an overhand athlete, you're going to be feeding in and increasing that asymmetry that. more and more. And I think that's where the slippery slope comes in. There's a point where an asymmetry is okay. There may be a sport or a specific position where an asymmetry is okay. However, that's a slippery slope. 
Well, because know, if we let that asymmetry that we know happens in the shoulder, the glenohumeral, if you're an overhand athlete, you're probably going to have a little bit less internal rotation than external rotation, a lot more external rotation than internal rotation, whatever, however I want to say it. But let's not let that shoulder asymmetry impact what's going on in their hips or impact what's going on in their lower body or significantly impact their motor pattern exactly. or movement pattern. So if you got an asymmetry that causes you to have a one in the movement screen on one side, or an asymmetry that causes you to have a DN on the SFMA, or an asymmetry that causes you to flunk the YBT, or an asymmetry that causes you to flunk Or pain the- on one side, not the other. Got it, got it. <laughs> but when we do grip dynamometry, we usually see not much greater than a 10% difference between your left and right hand, even though your right hand is running 90% of your day and your left hand's just hanging out there as a vice holding shit while you do shit with your other hand. But in their representation of strength, not dexterity, timing, coordination, or skill. In their represent, representation of strength, and you know why? There's freaking carryover. Lee, if you break your left leg and we put it in a cast and you do a bunch of quad extensions and hamstring curls with your left leg and then somebody else does the same thing and don't, you'll have more carryover. Your body actually will maintain the dormant side a little bit, neurologically speaking, just to try to maintain that balance. So our point is when you do strength and stability test. You shouldn't see significant asymmetry. When you do skill and dexterity test, test, you obviously should. You got one eye dominant, one foot dominant, and one hand dominant. Hand and eye dominant is way more prevalent than foot dominance. But I swear, if you put a camera on a staircase in your house and you got to go up those staircase every day, see which foot you go with every time. Right. And a lot of people say, well, I'll go with whatever foot I need to rise up first. No, you start stepping differently 10 steps away. That's right. So you can always lead with your right. When you put on your pants, when you put on your socks, you start with one foot. And so we have these habitual patterns that cause asymmetry. We have past injuries that cause asymmetry. And then we have activities that cause asymmetry. And oh my gosh, what happens if you're the trifecta? You're a one sport athlete, you're throwing a lot, and you don't do anything to balance yourself out. Greg Rose made a great statement one time. If you're a pro athlete and I don't see some asymmetries, you ain't training hard enough. But if they stay, I'm not a good enough trainer. <laughs> so, so we expect to see asymmetry when you're really trying to develop an asymmetrical skill. And part of the general strength, conditioning, health, and wellness base is to not let that cause you to have an asymmetry that our stats say are now putting you into a risk factor. So subtle asymmetries are expected. Huge asymmetries are probably going to take you out before anything else does. And so asymmetries are present. They're going to show, and there are three different ways to get them, your habits, your past medical history, and those are hard to change. And if you already know you're in an asymmetrical sport, get some balance training back in. I shouldn't be able to tell you're right or left-handed by you doing a Turkish get-up or a sun salutation. And I shouldn't be able to tell if you're right or left foot dominant by doing jump rope or Indian clubs. I shouldn't be able to tell your dominance by doing balance beams or bear crawls. So think about everything I just said. These sink the body back up and make you own your patterns. So to your point, your skill's always going to be asymmetrical and you're always going to have a preference. But if we can see it in the patterns that come out of your core and out of your fundamental movements, you got a virus. Right. On board. It, right. I mean, there, there's a point, but that's where you're, what you just talked about, where your functional training 
comes into play and why it's so important. If the worker, the person who's working on a job that's doing the same thing every day is no different than an athlete doing the same thing every day, but when they come in or when you recommend training, account for that. Basically try to work so that you can try to make them more symmetrical. You're fighting an uphill battle that you're not going to win if they're doing something like that, but try to account for that. Most people are not pro athletes, Gray. <laughs> Most people are not going to be a pro athletes. So we have to account for that in our training and understand that. And again, kind of, you know, putting a little bow on this, I think if we just look at the hands and feet, you know, kind of a couple of takeaways as a barometer, as a simple barometer for how the rest of the body is functioning, one, we have to start with the fundamentals and that's stability and understand that if your, your grip is bad and you gave a good, uh, just, again, you can get a dynamometer or just go do a flexed arm hang. Yep. You can stand on one foot. You can do an ankle mobility. The stats test. are uh, flexed arm hang, 20 seconds, extended arm hang, about a minute. Um, if you can't walk down, say, a 20 or 30 foot balance beam forward and backward barefoot without falling off, you probably got a foot stability problem or weakness too. Our test, dial it in a little bit more and give you a number to shoot for and to avoid. And if you think about a lot of our correctives that we've done, like the flows with the half foam roll or things like that, all these things are to do is push you right up against your compensation and show you if you just slow down, pay attention, you know, compare your left and right side. It's that, that state of awareness and that state of readiness. And you could, you could both say that, that grip strength, if I've got a previous baseline on your grip strength, not only does it give me a quick state of readiness, did you have a bad week, but it gives me a longevity predictor. And you said the exact same thing about balance. And these are two things that people, it, you made this point, quickly try to train and supplement without saying, what's the root of this problem? And the root of the problem is usually a bad habit, a past injury, or an activity that you're pursuing without balance. And that's it. And so if we can find out which one of these things is driving your bad patterns, the, the past injury that has been irresponsibly rehabilitated by you or somebody else, the habits that you're not even aware of. Matt and I were talking, digging with a shovel or raking leaves. You're always going to go one way. But if you start to get a little tightness in your back or a little fatigue, you switch hands. The funny thing is, before you know it, you'll be back on your other side and you didn't even make a conscious decision to do it. However, just that forethought to do it on my other side a little bit is all we're really trying to say. Because anybody who has to use these tools like axes and saws and shovels and rakes a long time, they either take periodic breaks, they have other stuff to do, or they become a little more ambidextrous. That's pretty much all it takes. <laughs> so, Greg, what is the practical advice? You know, just a couple of things you could probably tell someone who's, who's listening to this. Well, since, since a lot of pros do listen to this podcast, I'll tell them right now exactly what I've been telling our instructors for the last 10 years. I think that strong first represents a great way to strength train without forgetting hand strength. I, I think that, that a lot of the things done in their body weight courses and kettlebell courses treat the hands far better than, than a lot of the things that you and I probably learned a long time ago with straight bars and stuff. Now, if you're not into kettlebells, go right back to our chops and lifts and things like that. But I do think that, that I've probably sent more of our instructors to strong first to become kettlebell competent than just saying, look at what I'm doing with it because they're way better than me. And the creativity that we can pull back into how we work and function. I mean, I've had neck surgery patients doing partial getups with a beanbag. 
All right. There's no kettlebell there anymore, but it's still the same pattern. When it comes to the function of the feet and, and more primal things like climbing, crawling, and, and, and barefoot running, I've also sent a lot of our instructors to MoveNet with Erwan LaCour and Danny Clark. So you got Pavel and Brett over at Strong First and Erwan LaCour and Danny Clark at MoveNet. And these are just things that are so far removed from what our instructors get to do every day, but they give you so many more creative ideas and they allow you a chance to sort of cross-examine yourself without just doing the functional movement screen stuff. And so I do think that there's a lot of history and practical application in both Strong First and MoveNet. And when you hear the historical references they make and some of the programs they put together, it, it sort of, there's almost... If, if you do what they say, you're not going to have a bad movement screen, right? And if you do have a bad movement screen, it's probably better to clean up before you go because they're not here to correct you. They're here to condition and develop you. So if you come broken, they can only do but so much. So it's been this great relationship of these unbelievable strength and function development practices that are right there under our nose. And, and I've talked with both Pavel and Erwan. If so many people didn't already show up broken or unaware, we could have done a lot more this week or this weekend. But they, they show up broken and unaware. And so they have to go back and do our job and they can't do their job. And so, you know, I, I would encourage a lot of our listeners is number one, keep listening because <laughs> we really appreciate your support. Yeah, that's always a good piece of advice. <laughs> and, and, and understand functional movement the way we've had to do it as healthcare professionals and strength coaches to be responsible, but realize the creativity and practicality of simply using your body, a balance beam or a kettlebell. There's some experts out there and go spend a weekend with them, pattern yourself, Challenge yourself and you're going to get pearls of creativity that you can bring back to rehab or performance enhancement. So I, I can't compliment these guys enough for holding the line on what's authentic strength, what's authentic function. We got to hold the line on how to measure that and deal with all the problems that can stem when you go too much into your fitness without getting your function first. But if you want to stay fit and functional, uh, moving out and strong first will get you there real easy. But show up with something. <laughs> that will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move off.